Torah. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Do you recall the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his uh, ministry sidekick? He said this, In the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. Have you ever considered the possibility that you could depart from the faith, that you could give heed to seducing spirits? Well, that's an awesome thought to consider, isn't it? And many Christians form the opinion that that's impossible. And today on Viewpoint, we're going to discuss why they think that's impossible and whether that sets one view against another so that we cannot interpret the Word of God honestly and accurately. Today on Viewpoint, we ask the question, can saints be seduced? Can saints be seduced? And that will be the format, that will be the question, the fulcrum over which we will continue our series on how to study the Bible. You say, what's that have to do with how to study the Bible? It has everything to do with how to study the Bible. Last time, last week, when we took a look at how to study the Bible, we looked at why we should study the Bible, that we might not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, if it's possible to rightly divide the word of truth, then it's possible to wrongly divide the word of truth, right? So we don't want to wrongly divide it. We want to rightly divide it, rightly understand, rightly share it, rightly comprehend it, and rightly present it. We also discover that the word of life, word of God is alive and it's powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and discerns even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We also discover that the word of God will stand forever, that the word is truth, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It en- enables us to know the will of God and illuminates our path so that we might discern even deception. That's what we found out last time, last week, as we took a look at how to study the Bible. Today, we continue with that, but we're going to look with specificity, answering a question or attempting to answer the question, can saints be seduced? Well, the interesting thing is that the Apostle Paul apparently thought so. Because he said, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. Now, you can't depart from a place that you've never been, can you? So if you've been in the faith, and you've been walking in the faith, and you've been walking by faith, but now, in the latter times, you'll give heed to seducing spirits and depart from the faith. Well, that's interesting, because it contravenes what many people believe, what even many pastors believe and teach. So today on Viewpoint, we're going to take a look at how we can rightly discern the word of truth. This is one of the most critical questions, one of the most critical issues that you and I face when we talk about how to to study the Bible. So here I have a series of questions for you. When you go to study your Bible, whatever that means to you, why do you do that? 
What are you looking for? You see, what we're looking for will determine what we find or what we think we find because it defines what we want to find. And we want what we want, don't we? Because that's the nature of the flesh. The flesh wants what it wants, and it doesn't want to receive anything that it doesn't want. So like little babies, like little infants, they want what they want, and if they don't get what they want, what do they do? They cry, they scream, they throw a tantrum. So in a sense, when we're walking in the flesh, rather than in the spirit, we want what we want, and if we don't get it, well, somebody's going to pay. And we're going to scream, we're going to holler, we're going to resist, we're going to do whatever we have to do to get what we want. So here's my question. What do you want? What is it that you go to the Bible for? So here are seven possible things that you might go to the Bible for. Why don't you, as you listen, uh, kind of set them in order in your mind, what would be the priority of what you're going to the Bible for? Well, one choice might be to be calmed, to find peace or to be calmed in your mind or your spirit. Another might be to be informed, to get more information about God or about the Bible or about history, biblical history and so on. Another might be to be encouraged. Another might be to be directed. Yet another might be to be convicted or to be warned or finally to be judged. Have you noticed the trajectory of these all the way from soft, nice, pleasant feeling, calmed to something very neutral, something that doesn't necessarily change anything in my life, in my want-tos, by being informed, then we all like to be encouraged, don't we? And encouragement looks different to different people at different times. And, of course, we want to be directed, don't we? We want to know the will of God, especially if the will of God conforms to my will, what I want. But when it comes to being convicted by the Word of God, all of a sudden things change, don't they? And if we move from being convicted to being warned, then who wants to go there? So most people avoid passages that deal with being convicted and certainly passages that being deal with being warned and who wants to go to a passage that causes you to feel judged. The interesting thing is, though, and many people might not realize this, that Jesus is the living word, and he's going to be the one to judge the world in righteousness. He says the word will judge them. Jesus said that the word will judge you. Hmm. Did you know that? Did you know that the very word of God will judge you? So you can see then why it might be very important for us to understand a little more deeply why we are going to the Word of God. Why are we purporting to study the Word of God? 
So I'm glad that you've joined us. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and uh, I hope you will anchor your seatbelt today. You might want to put a shoulder harness on, because what we're, the ground that we're going to tread here is ground that will lead us through perhaps all seven of those items, but increasingly focus on things that might challenge us. So, might challenge our thinking, might challenge what we thought we believed. And how are we going to make the discernment? Well, it's going to require a level of integrity. A level of integrity of mind and heart for us to really understand why is it that I go to the Bible? What is it that I hope to get from the Bible? Do I really want what God wants in my life from his word once upon a time children could pray and read their bibles in school divorces were practically unknown as was child abuse in our once great america virginity and chastity were popular virtues and homosexuality was an abomination so what happened in just one generation hi i'm chuck chris Meyer, and i urge you to join me daily on viewpoint where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes could america's moral slide relate to the fourth commandment listen to viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org welcome back to viewpoint today we're looking at again the series how to study the bible but we're going to focus on why what is it in my mind and my heart that is causing me to purportedly study the bible you see i say purportedly study the bible because if all i'm looking for is something to tell me what i want to hear then i'm not really studying the bible at all I'm just looking for some kind of proof text to tell me what I already have determined in my mind is true or what I want to hear. And that's a very dangerous way to approach the Bible. In fact, it could be so dangerous as to lead you to consummate deception that may change your eternal destiny. And that's why the Bible warns about deception. Jesus, as you know, warned about in the latter days about massive deception. He said deception would be the primary characteristic of these times. And there are three periods of times that the Bible refers to in terms of last days. The first began at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, culminating in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. That's when the last days actually began. The Apostle Peter acknowledged that very directly in Acts chapter 2. Then, from there on to today, almost 2,000 years, we have experienced, been in that period called the last days. The last, shall we say, 2,000 years of a 6,000-year period. So what period are we in today? Well, that brings us to the next term that the Bible uses to describe a period of time that's much shorter toward the end of the last days. It's called the latter times or the latter days. The uh, book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 39, speaks of that particular time. It says, in the latter days or latter times, when Israel is at relative peace, 
that there's going to be a secret confederation of nations that will join together to attack Israel to take a spoil in the latter days. Well, how long is the latter days? We're not told. But it's a season, it's a period of time that's much, much shorter, and I believe that currently we are in the latter days. Now, that's my belief. Uh, You might believe otherwise, and the Bible doesn't specifically tell us exactly how long that period is. We just know that it's a shorter period of time. Maybe it's 50 years, maybe it's 100 years, maybe it's 25 years. We don't know, but it's a shorter period of time. Then finally, there is a period of time known as the Day of the Lord. That is the final, very short period of time at the end of the last days. The day of the Lord is the day or the time, the very short period of time, when the wrath of God is poured out on the children of disobedience. And immediately before that, the wrath of man is poured out via the Antichrist. So, that gives us the overarching picture of the last days. Now, if you look at it this way, If Jesus was crucified and rose again and the Holy Spirit was poured out at the beginning of the last days, and that was in 30 A.D., 2,000 years from then would take us to what year? Well, a little bit of uh, elementary mathematics would take us to the year 2030. The year 2030 is a mere seven years, less than seven years now, from our current date. Maybe that gives us a little bit of understanding as to how close we might be in the definition of these broader terms, the last days, the latter days, and then the day of the Lord. So Jesus spoke about these times, and he told his disciples that there was going to be massive deception. He said it would be the premier characteristic of these end times. In fact, he didn't just leave it with one word, one phrase, take heed that no man deceive you, but he went on to say that many would come even in his name and deceive many. So it's not just those who are pagans out there, or unbelievers, godless people who are deceiving, it's even professing believers. Who are deceiving. Then, as if that were not enough, Jesus went so far as to tell us at the end of Matthew chapter 24, close to the end, he said, look, the deception is going to be so great that if it were possible, even the very small remnant elect would be deceived. Now, here's our problem. Here's our problem. As we study the Bible, what does that mean? What does the word elect mean? If we're not willing to take a strong and clear look at the whole of Scripture with regard to the meaning of the word elect, we're going to come up with some very false understanding and false security as to its meaning and implications. So let me give you an idea as how this works. Remember, we're talking about how to study the Bible. 
Do we want to study the Bible for what it what we want it to tell us? To tell us what we want to hear? Or do we want God to tell us what he wants us to hear? Those may be two very different things. So Jesus said, if it were possible, even the very small remnant elect would be deceived. That's how massive the deception would be. Each of the apostles, Paul, John, James, Peter, warned about both deception and seduction. And all of their warnings were to professing believers, the saints. Hmm. Now, if these all warned the saints about massive deception and seduction, why would they warn them? Why would they warn them if the saints couldn't be deceived? Why would the Apostle Paul say to Timothy, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits? Why would he say that? So the first question that we have to ask is, or answer is, can the saints be seduced? You see, when we study the Bible, we have to study it with integrity. We have to study it with honesty. We can't study it according to what somebody else told us it means. We can't study it according to what we want it to say. We have to study it according to what it does say. And not just what it says in one place, but what it says in the pattern of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Because it's a whole. God is not schizophrenic. He's not multiple personalities. Personality, he is uh, Jesus Christ, remember, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God says, I change not. So his word changes not. His mind changes not. He's God. If that were not true, then there would be no such thing as your ability to depend on him, to have any level of confidence in what he says, right? So let's talk about, can the saints be seduced? Obviously, we've already discovered the the Apostle Paul not only thought they could be seduced, he warned about them being seduced. The Apostle Peter did exactly the same thing. He said there would be those even within the church who would have conniving spirits and would try to market the the word of God, would try to market it to the flesh, and of that would reap uh, corruption. Peter warned about that. So we've got Jesus, we've got the Apostle Paul, we've got the Apostle Peter warning the saints. The warnings are never to the pagans, because the pagans are deceived already. The pagans are condemned already. Jesus said so, right there in uh, John chapter 3, right there next to John 3.16. We don't uh, commonly go there. We don't go there because we don't want to hear what it says. That's the reason we don't go there. We want to go to John 3.16 because it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's wonderful. We should go there. But we should also likewise go to following where he says that those who are uh, pagans, 
unbelievers are condemned already because they have not received the word of God. So those that are condemned already are not being warned about seduction or deception. They're already deceived. So all the warnings of Scripture then, we have to realize, are to professing believers. And to seduce means to deceive or to cause to wander from the truth. To To go astray from that which is true, from that which is right. So, We have, con- we have determined then, at least on a basic basis, that throughout the scriptures, all of the warnings of scripture are to the saints and that the saints can be seduced or deceived. All right. Now, let's take a look at... Uh, this in the context of other aspects with regard to the last days. Paul made it expressly clear that in the season of the last days, professing believers in Christ will not be willing to put up with sound doctrine. But, he said, after their own lusts shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Itching ears is one of the premier characteristics of these latter days. The closer we get to the day of the Lord, to the end of the latter day period, the closer, the more intense the characteristic of itching ears. In other words, we want to hear what we want to hear. We want to believe what we want to believe. And ain't nobody going to tell me anything different. So, it keeps me from actually studying the Bible for what God says because I don't want to hear it. So the general tenor of the minds of people, men, women, yes, even those who profess Christ as Savior, is to hear only what they want to hear, what's pleasing, what makes them feel good, what makes generally acceptable, what markets well and seems successful. And that's what pastors tell their people. They preach and tell their people what they think will please the people, what they think will market well. That's how they write their books. It's not that they don't teach or preach the word. It's that they just don't teach or preach the whole word. That's usually the problem. They don't teach or preach the parts that give full understanding to what God has to say. So in such perilous times, when people resist the truth and become of corrupt minds, even reprobate or perverted in their faith, the Apostle Paul said seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, question, are we in those truly perilous times where the majority don't want to, not only don't want to to, to uh, hear the truth, but they're willing to be deceived And they become complicit themselves, even in propagating deception, because such people receive not the love of the truth. So God says, I'll send them deception or delusion. Now, if you look at the history of Israel and Judah, you find out that uh, this perilous phenomenon 
in part, was in part, but it is going to be amplified to an art form in these end times. Now, here's what the Lord ordered Ezekiel to do there in the Old Testament. To prophesy against the prophets of Israel, the spiritual leaders, their premier spiritual leaders, who purported to be the mouthpieces for God. He said, prophesy against the prophets of Israel. God thundered to those who prophesy out of their own hearts. Woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. They've seen vanity and lying divination, a vain vision. They have seduced my people, saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. So the prophets were the seducers, but the people were willingly seduced because they were of a mind and heart to be seduced. You say, wow. I wasn't sure I really wanted to hear that. But it's what we need to hear. If you want to follow the Lord in these deceptive times, we'll be right there back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Today we're talking again in a series of how to study the Bible. Last week we began such a series uh, I was so pleased that uh, there were there were many who uh, were very encouraged by that and uh, felt that it was so helpful uh, and and were grateful that we were bringing this uh, direction for studying the Bible. Most people, when they think about how to study the Bible, they're thinking about mechanics, some sort of mechanical process about how to study the Bible. But that's very secondary. The most important thing about studying the Bible is our attitude. Our attitude toward the Bible. Now, most people would say, well, yeah, I believe the Bible. People used to say, I believe the Bible from cover to cover and the cover too. Except what they didn't believe, you see. What they chose to disbelieve. What they chose to reinterpret because they didn't want to believe what they saw in plain words on the scripture. But somebody else told them it didn't mean that. Are you beginning to get the point? So, Here's what I want you to do. I, I want to provide to you a copy of my book, Seduction of the Saints. How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. This book is going to help you understand it's not about studying the Bible per se. It's about our hearts and our attitudes and why it is that the warnings of Scripture are so plain to professing believers. This is a big deal. It may be the biggest deal of all. Because Jesus said, as did his apostle Paul, Peter, James, and John, all warned 
about the seduction of professing believers or the saints. So, some have said this was one of the most important books they've ever read. I hope you will find it to be the same. It's an $18 book, yours for $15. It's on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. Give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Interestingly, as a former trial attorney, you have to know that we lawyers were supposed to be word mechanics. In other words, words mattered. And so there would be parsing of words. There would be uh, all kinds of analysis of words. And what do the words mean in a particular contract? What do the words mean in the Constitution? You see, words matter. Well, the words of the Bible matter, too. In fact, they matter even more so. So as a former trial attorney, and I come to you to talk about studying the Bible, I have to bring to this discussion an awful lot of what I know and understand with regard to words and with regard to how we rightly interpret words and the message that is being communicated. Because it's not just a particular word that we're concerned about. It's the context of those words, the immediate context, but not just the immediate context, the greater context in the entire contract, or in the entire Constitution, or in the entire Bible. So, even as believers, we set ourselves up for self-deception by our very propensity to embrace so-called truth that makes us feel good, but reject the so-called truth that doesn't make us feel good, right? That doesn't tell us what we want to hear. So our fleshly or carnal nature kind of screams at us to choose interpretations of the Bible that satisfy our flesh, our want-tos. So when a number of scriptural passages might be interpreted as opposing each other, what do we do? Well, our flesh requires that we decide in favor of the interpretation that pleases our flesh and requires that we decide in favor of the interpretation that pleases our flesh and reject or even reject even a vast array of other passages that don't seem to say what we want to hear. So our study of the Bible on issues that potentially conflict with our flesh requires a level of spiritual integrity, friends, that is increasingly rare because the spirit of deception has become the prevailing spirit here at the end of the age. We need to understand that. So, with that in mind, who are the elect? Be careful in answering that question. Are the saints the elect? If the saints are also the elect, should we not have concern that notwithstanding our fleshly desire to believe that we can't be deceived, that there's perhaps substantial reason to believe that such interpretation is neither correct nor accordance with the rest of the Scripture. In other words, that we can be deceived. And if we can be deceived, then does that fight against our current thinking about whether or not we're the elect? 
So if we were to look at the word elect, the words translated the elect from both the New and the Old Testaments come from root words that mean select or chosen. The Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. But who are the chosen? And when are they chosen? Who determines whether they're chosen? What does it really mean to be of the elect? And when are the elect finally determined? Well, the answer to those questions may not be as simple as many choose to believe based upon what they've been told by others. Now, we don't have time to go into an exhaustive uh, presentation of this, but hopefully, by the balance of this program, we'll have a better idea of how to understand the Bible, how to interpret with regard even to the issue of chosen and elect. So the word elect occurs 17 times in the Bible. Four of those are in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. In fact, it says Israel is God's elect, not the church. Isaiah 45, 4 says, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name, I have surnamed you. That may come as a shock to many. Israel is God's elect. So you might be thinking, well, but isn't the church God's elect? Well, the answer is yes. Both Israel and the church are elect of God. But then you might be wondering, well, wasn't Israel, including Judah, rejected by God for her rebellion or disobedience? Didn't God make the church the object of his election? Didn't Jesus say, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you? You see, the problems in our understanding as Gentile Western Christians now begin to emerge. Jesus was addressing Jewish disciples whom he had chosen. Paul, a Jew, was addressing the church at Rome. He said, has God cast away his people, Israel? God forbid. God has not cast away his people, Israel, which he foreknew. Even so then at this present time also, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. A what? A remnant. Don't forget that word a remnant according to the election of grace. No, Paul here is speaking of Israel, not the church. So where does that leave the Gentile church? Where does that leave you and I if we're Gentiles? Well, Paul speaks with great particularity to that. He says, through there, that is Israel's fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles. For to provoke provoke. Israel to jealousy. So Paul then warns Gentile believers. Listen to this. Paul warns Gentile believers. That's the church referring to Israel as the original olive tree of God's elect or chosen purpose. That Gentile believers should not become proud as if they're more chosen. In fact, Paul says, you Gentiles are the fruit of the root and the root is Israel. So the only hope of Gentiles, that is you and me, is to be grafted into the original or chosen olive tree, Israel, through the promises that were made to Abraham. That the blessings of Abraham, you see, might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that you and I might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. But then the question is, well, what is that faith? How long does that faith have to continue? 
Paul warned professing Gentile believers that the same fate can happen to them that happened to Israel. So he made a bold proclamation that huge numbers of professing Gentile believers and their pastors who hang their hats on a misunderstanding of election never seem to find time to read or include in their teaching. So here's what Paul said. It was a warning. He said, for if God spared not the natural branches, that is Israel, the chosen, the elect, take heed lest he also spare don't spare you. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if. This is the biggest little word of the Bible that we need to pay attention to. If. You continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you'll also be cut off. Now, he's talking to the Gentile church. He said, if you act like Israel did and don't walk in faith and in truth and in integrity of uh, obedience before God, then you also will be cut off just as Israel the elect was cut off. So then Paul goes on to say that they also, that is Israel, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So... Here's what we can learn from these passages. Please pay close attention. This is how we have to study the word of God to gain its truth, friends. From these passages, we learn many truths about the word election, the meaning of it. We also learn some things that significantly differ from much common belief and teaching about election and the elect. So, First of all, the word elect refers primarily to a community of people chosen by God, not to individuals. I want you to keep that in mind as we go into this break. This is very important to understand. The word elect refers primarily to a community of people chosen by God, not to individuals. It's not an American view. It's God's view. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Again, I welcome you back to Viewpoint. We're talking about how to study the Bible. And we're applying this in a particular area so that we can see how easily it is for us to form viewpoints or opinions 
that are actually contrary to what the Bible teaches. And if there's any area that we need to get this straight, it's in the area of the meaning of elect or election or chosen. So here's what we find as we go through the Bible in its totality, we discover about the meaning of elect. The word elect refers primarily to a community of people chosen by God, not to individuals. Not to you individually, but to a people. First to Israel as a group, and then to the church as a group. So Israel is the elect chosen by God. He said so, not just once, but several times. Next, the Gentile church, as the ecclesia, or the body of Christ, is elect only as grafted into the original olive tree of Israel, so as to inherit the promises through Abraham. Then, the majority of those constituting Israel were broken off from the community of the elect, and they were not spared by God. The majority of Israel that were called the elect were broken off, yet there was still an elect remnant that were not broken off. Gentiles also, Paul said, can be broken off by God, through the community of the elect are chosen the church. So in the same way that the Israel was elect as a people, many, the majority, were broken off because they did not walk by faith continually. But there was still a remnant that would fulfill God's calling to them as the elect. The same is true of the Gentile church. Our only hope is to be grafted into Israel. But Paul says, just as what happened to them caused many, the majority of them, to be broken off, the same thing can happen to you, Gentiles, claiming to be elect of God and perhaps leaving only a small group or remnant elect. So repentance by those individuals broke off or cast off from the elect or chosen community will allow them, by God's goodness, to be grafted back in and become part of the elect again. So then we find the clincher that helps to complete what the Bible really teaches about election, and it causes all other passages throughout the Scriptures to come into alignment, and here it is. You find it in Romans chapter 11, verse 5. Here's what it says. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, what is that remnant? Well, it is the residue of those who were part, first of Israel, that was the elect, but the majority didn't follow, So there was only a small remnant that was left of the elect of Israel. They were the elect. The same is true of the Gentile church. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that before the coming of Christ and the appearance of the Antichrist, there will be a great apostasy or falling away within the Gentile church. Does that mean that it violates 
uh, Jesus or the Father's calling of the elect. No, it means that the elect, the ultimate elect, are only going to be the remnant of those who are truly walking with the Lord in the light of his word. So, we now have what what I believe to be good, sound, and biblical understanding of what we would call chosenness or election, and the elect that binds the whole of God's word together and helps us to clear up many understandings and the possible dire consequences. So here we go again. The word elect refers primarily to a community of people rather than to individuals. Israel is God's elect. The Gentile church, consisting of individual believers in Christ, becomes part of the election by being grafted into Israel through the promises made to and through Abraham. The majority of individual Israelites became unelected from the elect group because they are not all Israel which are of Israel. They were cut off. Individual professing Gentile Christians can also be cut off from the community of the elect, just like the Israelites. Genuine repentance, according to the goodness of God, will allow either Jews or Gentiles to be regrafted into the community of the elect. That's why repentance is so critical. Only a comparatively small portion, that is remnant, of both Israel and the Gentile church will ultimately be considered by God as part of the elect. And even those will remain only by God's extraordinary loving grace, that is his favor and enabling power. It is this remnant which is ultimately chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame, predestined unto adoption. That ties together, friends, the entire understanding concerning election, concerning adoption, concerning even predestination. It's not what we're told that it is. Now, we have the rest of the story. Now we can see why Jesus declared that if it were possible, even the very elect, a small remnant of Jew and Gentile believers should be deceived. But all true Israel, this remnant elect, will be saved. Those, these are those who endure to the end, as Jesus said, because the love of many is going to wax cold. This is probably why Jesus gave that grave warning early in his ministry. He said, enter in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and very few there be that find it. Why? Because the reason few there be that find the straight gate is because the majority who even embark in that direction become deceived so as to head in the direction of the broader ways. That, my friends, is what is happening to us today. You can see it everywhere. The drift of the church since the late 1960s, uh, the church growth movement, then the seeker-sensitive movement, the emerging church movement, all of this trend has been to apostatize gradually and to reinterpret the word of God and to make it seem like an easy way. 
Now, Paul warned the church that Christ has reconciled us to present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If, here's that big letter word again, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Would you like to know where that's found? Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. Again, Paul says he warns that Christ has reconciled us to present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if, if we continue in the faith grounded and settled. What happens if you don't? You fall away. You're not part of the elect anymore. Because the election, the ultimate election, is not determined until the end. That's why the Apostle Paul warns again, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. You see, if we really are willing to study the Word of God and understand the spirit of it, what God is really trying to say it leads us to some different conclusions that may not be all that soft and, shall we say, pleasing to our flesh. The Bible says that a remnant shall endure to the end. Are you going to be among that remnant, which is called the elect? Fortunately, Jude, just before the book of Revelation, gives us a a very, very uh, hope-filled instruction. Listen to it very carefully. He's he's talking about how the saints have been seduced and uh, warning to the saints. But then he says this, But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Notice he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Jude knew you could fall, but God is able to keep you from falling if you keep yourself in your most holy faith. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. And all the saints who are truly wanting to understand the word of God, who are truly wanting to obey his voice, who are truly wanting to have it prick their conscience, and convict where necessary, warn where necessary, encourage where necessary, and judge where necessary, will say, Amen. Now, I would suggest that you seriously consider getting a copy of my book, Seduction of the Saints. Staying Pure in a World of Deception. Because if we can't get these elementary truths straight, how in the world are we going to get anything else straight? Because if we don't understand 
that you can fall away, then we render all the warnings of Jesus, all the warnings of Paul, all the warnings of Peter, John, and James, we render them moot, meaningless. And obviously, if we really believe the Bible, we know that those words could not be meaningless. So what choice will you make? We have to make a decision. When we read the Word of God, when we study the Word of God with integrity, it requires that we make decisions. How many times? I've grown up at the church, father a pastor, major in religion at church-related college, thought I knew the Bible from cover to cover. How many times have I, over the past 50 years, had to make decisions acknowledging that I was wrong? No matter how strongly I believe something because that's what I have been taught all my life, and then realized the Bible doesn't say that at all. I tell you, what I'm sharing with you is not theory. It's reality. And it's becoming more and more reality as we press even further into this period of the latter days, immediately before the day of the Lord. Now is the time we've got to get this right. Now is the time we've got to agree with God. As the scripture says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? This might have been challenging for some today. Probably was. That's okay. That's what the word of God is dying to do. To pierce even through the divide, dividing asunder of soul and spirit and discern even the thoughts and intents of our hearts. God wants us to get on his mind and heart set, not the one that we prefer. Thanks for joining us. Get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints, an $18 book, yours for $15 on our website, saveus.org. Oh, friends, it deals with far more than anything that we've talked about today. That's just a little, little, little tiny sampling. I don't think you'll be disappointed. It's on our website, saveus.org. Become a partner. Send your gifts, friends, by faith. We're confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and hope from God's eternal perspective. God bless and be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home. 